Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It is my pleasure to welcome you to the second of four IPS Northern Lectures by Mr. Ravi Menon, our ninth SR Northern Fellow for the Study of Singapore. Today, Mr. Menon will be delivering his second lecture, titled An Innovative Economy. Following his lecture, Mr. Menon will take questions from the audience in a Q&A session. This Q&A session will be chaired by Mr. Chung Kai Fong, Managing Director of the Singapore Economic Development Board. Before we begin, please allow me to go over some housekeeping rules for the event. This lecture is being streamed live on Facebook. It will also be recorded and uploaded onto our IPS website and social media platforms later. Please submit your comments and questions at any time during the lecture through the Facebook comment box. We will try our best to answer as many questions as we can during the Q&A. We would also like to hear your feedback. At the end of the lecture, there will be a QR code and a link on the Facebook comment box, which you can scan or click on to submit your feedback. So, without further ado, I would like to invite Mr. Ravi Menon to begin his second lecture, An Innovative Economy. Mr. Menon, please. Good afternoon. The only way out of our trade-offs and dilemmas is to innovate. In my first lecture, The Four Horsemen, I outlined the challenges posed by demographics, inequality, technology, and climate. Dealing with, these, dealing with each of these will require generous doses of innovation. In today's lecture, I'll focus on what it means to be an innovative economy. The demographics horsemen will progressively shrink Singapore's labor force. Our labor force participation rates are now among the highest globally. Further gains will be limited. Assuming no net migration and no increase in foreign workers, the overall labor force will decline gradually from next year onwards. This means it can no longer contribute to GDP growth. The source of economic growth will then be productivity growth, which in turn depends on the growth in capital-labor ratio, growth in human capital, and innovation. Singapore's physical capital intensity and educational attainments are already high. There is still room for some more growth, but it will, be, it will not be much. That leaves innovation as our main source of future growth. Here is where the technology horsemen and climate horsemen come in. They provide powerful impetus for innovation, new business models, new products and solutions, and new markets. Singapore is no longer a catch-up economy. Most countries are catch-up economies, where growth is more about investing in existing ways of doing things. It is not that there is no innovation in these economies. There is, but it is not the main source of growth. Countries like the US, UK and Germany are mostly frontier economies, where most of the growth comes from innovation. Singapore is increasingly getting closer to a frontier economy. If we do not innovate, we will stagnate, especially given our demographic drag. As Philip Aguillon from INSEAD puts it, and I quote, innovation and diffusion of knowledge are at the heart of the growth process, unquote. 
One of Singapore's great strengths is its ability to adapt best practices from elsewhere to our local context. But increasingly, we must now dare to be a first mover, with the full knowledge that we will occasionally fail in some of our endeavours. Innovation must be at the heart of the new economy. Today, I want to highlight three areas where we can be truly innovative. One, make our domestic services exportable. Two, transform our economy to be digital end-to-end. -end. And three, take the lead in Asia as the vanguard of a green economy. I will conclude with why an innovative economy also needs a strong Singaporean core working alongside the best global talents. First, to be a truly innovative economy, innovation needs to be pervasive. A good place to start would be to look at product productivity across different sectors. Let me tell a tale of two productivities. Singapore's overall productivity performance during the last decade has been impressive. Real value added per worker grew at a compounded annual growth rate of 1.6% during 2010 to 2019. Now this is up from 1.1% in the preceding decade, 2000 to 2009. Many analysts seem to not appreciate that Singapore's productivity growth over the past decade was better than most advanced economies at similar levels of per capita income. Singapore does not have a productivity problem at the overall level. Our problem is that productivity levels and growth are highly uneven across sectors. In fact, I would say Singapore has a dual economy, an internationally competitive, highly productive, well-paying, tradable sector, and a domestically focused, non-tradable sector with low productivity. By tradable sector, I mean manufacturing, wholesale trade, transport and storage, hotels, ICT services, professional services, and financial services. Together, they account for about 70% of GDP, but only about 50% of resident employment. The non-tradable sector includes construction, real estate, retail trade, food services, utilities, rental, leasing, and administrative services, and other services. The dual productivity shows up in wage differentials. Average resident monthly wages in the tradable sector in 2019, before the COVID-19 pandemic, were around 60% higher than in the non-tradable sector. 60% higher. Most of Singapore's productivity growth over the last decade was due to productivity gains within sectors and mostly within the tradable sector. Shifts in employment between sectors contributed negatively to overall productivity growth. The employment share in the less productive, domestically-oriented sectors increased at the expense of more productive, outward-oriented sectors. This shift effect has improved somewhat in recent years as more productive services, such as financial and ICT, created jobs at a healthy pace but it is not clear that this will continue. Basically, the trend shift in employment towards sectors with lower productivity and lower growth rates 
remains a challenge. Moreover, the productivity and wage gaps between the tradable and non-tradable sectors have widened over the years. The productivity gap between the sectors has widened from 60% in 2015 to 69% in 2020. So has the wage gap. The wedge between the tradable and non-tradable sectors is wider in Singapore than international norms. Now, almost every country has a dual economy structure, but the duality in our economy is more pronounced. It probably reflects the strong outward orientation in our economic development strategies since independence, while the non-tradable services have been hindered by our small domestic market. It is unlikely that the highly productive export-oriented sectors will be able to significantly raise their employment share. The manufacturing sector has, been, has seen weak employment growth gains since the global financial crisis of 2009, despite strong output growth. Even in recent years, with manufacturing value added growing by an average of 5.4% per annum during 2016 to 2020, resident, and resident employment fell by an average of 1.1% per annum. This secular decline in manufacturing employment has been experienced by many advanced economies as well. The financial services sector has done better on the employment front, creating 5,300 net jobs per annum during 2016 to 2020. But these numbers are small compared to the annual supply of Singapore residents entering the workforce at roughly 24,000 per annum. We are likely to see continued strong employment growth in some non-tradable domestic services. Some domestic services have high income elasticities of demand, meaning the demand for these services grow faster than growth in incomes. Services like education and continuous training, healthcare, social services, entertainment and recreation. Now, these domestic services are not small. Together, they make up 8% of Singapore's GDP. That's bigger than the banking industry and almost as big as the electronics industry. They account for one out of every seven resident jobs. So we should promote more innovation to increase productivity and wage growth in these domestic services. For a start, we should progressively reduce our reliance on lower-skilled foreign labour in these sectors and allow wages to gradually rise to attract more Singaporeans. This will no doubt imply higher cost, but it could be mitigated in part by a more skilled workforce and higher investment in technology and innovation. Some fiscal support may be also necessary to ensure the affordability of essential services for lower-income households. We should strive to make education and healthcare major exportable services. A large external market will provide the scale necessary to make sizable investments in technology and human capital, thereby raising productivity and wages in these sectors. Can Singapore aspire to be the Oxbridge of Asia for education and the Mayo of Asia for healthcare? Given the trust premium Singapore enjoys, and the high quality of our education and healthcare systems, coupled with the rise of a more discerning Asian middle class, 
the stars might be aligned for such a pivot. The key concern in making such a pivot is, of course, whether the drive to serve overseas customers and raise wages in these sectors will increase education and healthcare costs for Singaporeans. So we will need some creative way to ensure that Singaporeans continue to have access to affordable education and healthcare services. The export intensity of our education and healthcare services has not improved over the years. In 2017, about 13% of the output in education services was exported, just a tad higher than the 12% in 2010. Meanwhile, the export intensity of healthcare services fell from 15% to 10% during this period. Now, our export intensity numbers are not bad compared to many OECD countries, but that's because they have much larger domestic markets to serve. The question for us is, should the export intensity of two of our high-quality services sectors, which employ a large number of Singaporeans, not be even higher? We cannot hope to be a high-wage, low-cost economy. One man's cost is another man's wage. So to escape the dual economy trap, we need to become a high-productivity, high-wage, and a high-cost economy where most people can bear the higher costs because they have higher wages and can earn higher wages because they have higher productivity. There will, of course, be a group whose wages will not be high enough to bear the higher costs. Now, this is a group whose incomes the state should consider supplementing. There is somewhat of a fear in Singapore, both among businesses and in government circles, that high wages will translate into a loss of competitiveness. This fear was no doubt implanted deep in our psyche by the shock of the 1985 recession, when high labour costs sharply reduced Singapore's international competitiveness. But 35 years later, as a high productivity economy, that calculus, while still relevant, is somewhat less compelling. Country experiences bear this out. According to work done by the economist Paul de Grau, on average, countries with high labour costs are also highly competitive. Think of the countries in Northern Europe. Likewise, we should aim to create a self-reinforcing, virtuous cycle of higher wages and costs accompanied by higher productivity, as well as higher purchasing power and willingness to pay for higher quality domestic services. It will not be easy, and the transition has to be carefully managed but it's worth trying. The second key to an innovative economy is to be digital end-to-end. -end. This means two things. Digitalizing the business processes within a firm end-to-end -end, and ensuring that digital systems across firms are interoperable. Digitizing only part of a business value chain does little to increase efficiency. So simply adopting electronic payments while invoicing remains in paper form and reconciliation of accounts requires printing statements is hardly transformative. Using a digital identity to initiate a transaction but having to provide a wet ink signature to consummate the deal breaks the digital chain. Digital end-to-end -end means digitalizing every stage of the business value chain so that the process 
So the transaction is paperless and presenceless. The front-end operations of sales, purchases, and payments must be fully integrated with the back-end financial accounting, tax filing, inventory management, supply chain monitoring. The second gap in the digital economy is the lack of interoperability. While a variety of digital solutions has proliferated, their services and solutions are often not interoperable. As a result, we're not able to exploit the full efficiency benefits of digitalization. It also means that the digital economy is not as inclusive as it should be, with users segmented by walled gardens built by providers of these digital services. A comprehensive digital ecosystem is key to creating a truly digital economy. This means collective governance, common standards, open architecture, and interoperable infrastructure so that network effects can be maximized and the full potential of individual innovations realized. We need collaboration across industry, government, research institutions, and the technology community at large. The degree of collaboration required is not trivial, which is why few countries are even trying to do this. Singapore is doing this quite systematically and quite well too, but we're not done yet. Let me describe what I think are the four key components of such a digital ecosystem. Digital infrastructure, digital governance, digital inclusion, and digital connectivity. Singapore has put in place the foundational infrastructure for a digital economy. Just as physical infrastructure, like railroads, help to advance the industrial economy, a digital infrastructure will spur the growth of the digital economy. It allows different users, different solutions, and different devices to seamlessly interact with one another. A foundational digital infrastructure enables interoperable solutions and seamless digital services to reach more people and businesses at lower cost and greater convenience. It avoids the pitfalls of isolated technology solutions, digital islands and walled gardens. I would describe Singapore's foundational digital infrastructure as comprising four mutually reinforcing layers. The first layer is the national digital identity in the form of SingPass. A digital identity establishes trust at both ends of the digital transaction. It enables access to the realm of public and private digital services across different sectors. It promotes digital inclusion. Singaporeans can use SingPass to transact digitally with both the government and the private sector. It can be used for authentication, verification, and digital signing. The second layer is trusted and secure data in the form of MyInfo. MyInfo is a government digital service that enables Singapore residents to authorize third parties to access their personal data residing across different government agencies through the use of application programming interfaces or APIs. This means that with the consent of the customer, a bank can use the MyInfo service for more efficient know-your-customer assessments using government-verified personal data. Corporate data can be similarly assessed 
and made available by authorized corporate users using MyInfo business APIs. The third layer is an authorization framework. To foster public confidence that digital transactions are safe and secure, we need mechanisms for consent by individual users or corporate users to ensure that the use of data is properly authorized. These mechanisms also ensure transparency in the use of data, that data will be used and shared in accordance with the purposes for which it has been provided and in a manner that is expected and understood by individuals. Today, using SingPass, Singaporeans can make available relevant verified information from MyInfo to allow banks to onboard them without paper documentation or physical presence. The fourth layer is an electronic payments rail in the form of FAST and PayNow. FAST is the core backbone, a 24-7 internet-based payment system that allows us to transfer funds directly from one bank account to another bank account in real time at zero cost. PayNow rides on FAST to allow payments to be made into the payee's bank account using just the payee's mobile number or NRIC. Business users of PayNow can generate a QR code containing the unique entity number. We can pay our utilities provider, telephone company, or plumber by simply scanning their QR code using our smartphone and keying in the amount to be transferred. The fast PayNow infrastructure has made digital payments interoperable and seamless. Second key component of a comprehensive digital ecosystem is governance. Sound digital governance gives space for innovation while giving people the confidence to engage in the digital economy. First, smart regulation to mitigate the risks while harnessing the benefits and not hindering innovation. This means taking a risk-based approach to regulating new technology. Regulators need to keep pace with innovation but regulation itself must not front-run innovation. Introducing regulation prematurely may stifle innovation <clears throat> and potentially derail the adoption of useful technology. Smart regulation allows experimentation outside the regulatory perimeter, but within controlled boundaries through mechanisms such as the regulatory sandbox. Regulation should be introduced when the risk posed by the new technology becomes material or crosses a certain threshold. Second, a sound governance framework for the use of data in a digital economy. Data privacy policies should allow harnessing the benefits of data aggregation and data sharing while safeguarding confidentiality of personal data. Transparency is one of the key principles for fostering trust in a digital economy. Users and data subjects must be given clear explanations of what data is being used and how it is being used, as well as the consequences of decisions made using the data. Singapore has begun to put in place the foundations for a sound data governance framework. IMDA's Trusted Data Sharing Framework, underpinned by the Personal Data Protection Act, is a good baseline for data partnerships in a digital economy. Third, we should seriously consider mandating basic cyber hygiene for all businesses engaged in the digital economy. It is as essential as fire safety requirements. 
Cyber hygiene includes basic things like securing administrative ac accounts, controlling network access at the perimeter, installing security patches promptly, installing antivirus software, data encryption at rest and in transit, monitoring database activity, and multi-factor authentication for users who access confidential information over the internet. Research shows that more than 80% of cyber incidents could have been avoided if these basic precautions were in place. Smart nation must first be a cyber secure nation. A third priority to get right early in the digitalization journey is digital inclusion. Everyone must have access to a set of basic digital enablers to participate meaningfully in the emerging digital economy. For a digitally integrated and inclusive society, we should aim for every child in Singapore entering secondary school to have a digital identity, a bank account accessible via SingPass, a registration with PayNow, and a basic mobile device with internet capability. There is an opportunity here to integrate SingPass, PayNow, and a basic no-frills bank account as a digital enabler package. Of course, the bank account should be in trust or joint with the parents until the child reaches 18 or 21. And there are several non-trivial implementation issues to consider, but none of them are insurmountable. The most efficient way to enhance the digital inclusion of SMEs is perhaps through utility-like digital platforms. These are common platforms into which they can plug and play, rather than for each of them to build a comprehensive, bespoke, digital infrastructure. To reach out to so many SMEs, to get them to build their own proprietary digital capabilities and infrastructure, it's going to be hugely difficult. Better to help them build some basic digital connectivity capabilities, and they can then plug into these platforms. Singapore can become a truly digital economy if we can achieve broad-based SME digitalization. IMDA is helping SMEs gain ac access to digital resources under the SMEs Go Digital Initiative. SMEs are offered virtual assistance or CTO as a service to help them identify their digital needs and choose the appropriate digital solutions. Enterprise Singapore is engaging SMEs upstream through a Start Digital Pack. The aim is to equip all new businesses at the point of incorporation with core digital tools, such as digital identity, e-payments, e-invoicing, digital accounting, digital marketing, and cybersecurity. The fourth key component of a comprehensive digital ecosystem is digital connectivity. In fact, digital connectivity beyond Singapore will be the most impactful expression of what it means to be an end-to-end -end digital economy. Here, Singapore is breaking new ground through a series of digital connectivity initiatives that will position us strongly as an innovative and connected digital economy. First, seamless cross-border trade through the Networked Trade Platform, or NTP. NTP is a one-stop trade and logistics ecosystem which connects players across the trade value chain in Singapore and abroad. All documents are digitized and the process is digitalized end-to-end. -end. 
NTP functions as several things rolled into one. It is a trade information management system linked to other systems. It is a platform offering a range of trade-related services and cross-industry data to gain deeper insights. And it's a document hub for digitalization, digitization at source that enables a single set of data to be used within a streamlined process. The next step in NTP is to enable the digital exchange of trade documents with key destination markets. MTI and Singapore Customs are talking to a few countries to explore this. Second, a one-stop clearance portal for ships calling at the Port of Singapore through digital iPod at SG. The portal streamlines about 16 regulatory applications that were previously submitted to various agencies such as MPA, ICA and NEA into a single window for port clearance services. The next phase of the initiative aims to integrate just-in-time and other port services to improve vessel turnaround time. Third, end-to-end -end digitalization of the supply chain through the Singapore Trade Data Exchange or Trade, SG TradeX. SG TradeX aims to connect local and global supply chains via a trusted, secure and, and intuitive data sharing infrastructure through enabling seamless data exchange between supply chain stakeholders SG TradeX aims to extend Singapore's competitive advantage as a hub for international trade and shipping into the virtual realm. SG TradeX will enable Singapore to offer transparency in documentation, interoperability of trading and shipping systems, and full traceability along the supply chain. Transparency and traceability along supply chains are becoming a strong value proposition amidst the rising demand for more stringent environmental, sustainability, and governance standards. Fourth, holistic personal financial planning through the Singapore Financial Data Exchange, or SG Findex. This is a pioneering data exchange platform, the first of its kind in the world, which uses SingPass and a centrally managed online consent system to enable Singaporeans to assess their financial information held across different government agencies and different financial institutions. Singaporeans can seamlessly consolidate their financial information and use digital tools to make holistic financial planning decisions. The next stage is to include data from the central depository as well as data from insurance companies to enable individuals to have an even more complete view of their financial status. Fifth, Enhanced access to global customers and suppliers through Business Sans Borders, or BSB. It's not just cross-border trade that SMEs have to contend with. They have to look abroad for business opportunities, for suppliers and customers, as well as manage procurement and logistics across borders. BSB is designed to connect different platforms globally to help SMEs seamlessly assess a much larger ecosystem of buyers, sellers, financiers, and logistics providers. It uses AI to enable SMEs to discover prices, diversify their sales opportunities, assess various supply chains, source for relevant digital and financial solutions across the BSB network. BSB has just been operationalized by a private commercial entity called Proxterra. Sixth, 
aligning digital rules and standards to support cross-border digital trade through Digital Economy Agreements, or DEAs. Singapore has pioneered and concluded DEAs with Chile, New Zealand, and Australia. Digital Economy Agreements help to achieve cross-border digital connectivity by aligning digital rules and standards, facilitating interoperability between digital systems and supporting secure cross-border data flows. They contain provisions for personal data protection, the ethical use of AI, cross-border regulatory sandboxes, interoperable e-invoicing systems, and cooperation towards compatible digital identity regimes. DEAs will enable our businesses to connect digitally with their overseas partners more seamlessly. They will lower operational cost, increase business efficiency, and facilitate easier and trusted access to overseas markets. When we put together these six digital connectivity programs, it makes for a compelling and powerful digital architecture. Few countries, if any, have such a comprehensive digital ecosystem. It gives Singapore a distinct advantage in the emerging global digital economy. The third dimension of an innovative economy is for Singapore to be the vanguard of a green economy revolution in Asia. It entails deep structural reforms to the way our economies operate. The world needs to move away from a resource-intensive economic model of extraction and consumption, essentially unchanged since the Industrial Revolution, towards a 21st century approach of resilience and sustainability, protecting the environment while generating inclusive growth and prosperity. A green economy is a horizontal, not a vertical. We sometimes think of the green economy as a sector, a collection of green industries and activities. Rather, a green economy should be viewed as the state of the economy itself. It's like the digital economy I just spoke about. The digital economy is not the 5% of GDP made up by the ICT services sector. It is a horizontal that cuts across all sectors. The same is with the green economy. It is a theme that cuts across all sectors, and it is about greening the economy as a whole. A green economy is low carbon, resource efficient, and socially inclusive. In a green economy, growth in income and employment is driven by investments that reduce greenhouse gas emissions and pollution, enhance energy and resource efficiency, and avoid the loss of biodiversity. The green economy is based on the understanding that the economy depends on the natural environment and on the coexistence of people and nature. A green economy adopts a life cycle approach to minimizing environmental footprint. The life cycle of a product transits through raw material extraction, conceptual design, manufacturing, distribution, consumption, and end-of-life treatment options such as recycling, recovery, and reuse. A life cycle approach allows us to recognize how our choices influence what happens at each stage of the production state, each stage of the production cycle, and help us identify hidden opportunities and account for unintended consequences and spillover implications. Going green should be seen as an economic opportunity, not a cost. 
greening the economy is not necessarily a drag on growth, but can potentially be a new engine of growth. Equally important, it can be a net generator of good jobs. According to the World Economic Forum, the global shift to a green economy will create 16 million jobs by 2030. At the same time, a reduction in coal-powered electricity, petroleum extraction and other sectors could disappear, could reduce 6 million jobs by 2030. Many of the new green jobs will require different skills than previous energy jobs or will be in new locations. People who currently depend on fossil fuel intensive activities need support to thrive in a zero carbon future. Like all economic transformations, the green transition will involve winners and losers. And unless this is recognized and dealt with, the sustainability agenda will lose social legitimacy. One dimension of the distributional impact is how households at different income levels are affected. Research has shown that environmental policies in developed countries tend to have regressive effects, with lower income households being more negatively affected in relative terms. An efficient yet equitable transition to a green economy requires close consultation and proactive planning among all stakeholders, workers, employers, governments, communities, and civil society. This ensures that people who currently depend on fossil fuel intensive activities receive the support, the social protection, and investments they need to thrive in a zero emissions future, and that the costs and benefits of climate action are distributed equitably. According to empirical work by the United Nations Environmental Programme, the greening of economies neither inhibits wealth creation nor employment. However, there is a period of job losses during this transition, which requires investment in reskilling and re-educating the workforce. With adequate planning, dislocated workers can find good jobs in related sectors. For instance, some skills in traditional oil and gas roles are relevant to carbon capture, utilization and storage, and low carbon gas production and transport roles. The transition to green is therefore not without risk, but if well planned and executed, the payoffs can be substantial. Take for instance the contrasting fortunes of two large coal mining regions in the world, the Appalachian region in America, and the Ruhr Valley in Germany. The mass closures of coal mines in the Appalachian region led to a heartbreaking story of high unemployment, intergenerational poverty, and social dysfunction. Similarly, the Ruhr region in Germany lost 70% of its 480,000 coal mining jobs over a 25-year period. However, employment in the region eventually recovered as workers found jobs in R&D of environmental technology. This successful transition was the result of forward planning, investments in industry diversification, staggering of mine closures, and a comprehensive package of support measures, leading to a major restructuring of the regional economy with no job losses. Singapore should aim to be the vanguard of a green economy revolution in Asia. As a country, we have always been committed to the idea of sustainable development. 
economic growth with environmental protection and social inclusion. We embedded greenery in our urban landscape. We preserved a small tropical rainforest right in the middle of our city. We were one of the earliest countries in the world to limit our car population. But most of all, we have the ingredients of the success story of the rural region. Proactive planning, long-term orientation, tripartite consultation and cooperation. We can not only green our own economy, but also contribute to the greening of Asia's economies, creating new business opportunities and jobs. Going green is a whole of economy, whole of society effort. The drive towards sustainability will touch almost all aspects of economic and social activity. The changes we need to make and capabilities we need to build are manifold. Green technologies to decouple growth from the depletion of natural capital. Eco-industrial parks to reduce the carbon footprint of production processes. Procurement practices that take sustainability into consideration. Capacity building programs in sustainability for businesses, especially SMEs. Sustainability skills frameworks for workers. Eco-labeling to provide consumers information about the environmental impact of the products they purchase, and so on. Let me touch on two critical success factors for a green economy where Singapore needs to considerably step up. Measurement and disclosure, and carbon pricing. A prerequisite for greening the economy is to first measure how brown it is. To be a credible green economy, our companies must identify, measure, and disclose their carbon footprints, set emissions reductions targets, and report progress. What gets measured gets managed. We need widespread adoption of standard metrics to measure the carbon footprint of various economic activities and globally compatible taxonomies to determine what are green, transition, and brown activities. Measurement must in turn lead to disclosure that is high quality and comparable so that sound, climate-informed economic and financial decisions can be made. The availability of trusted sustainability data remains a big challenge. The process of data acquisition is manual, cumbersome and costly. There's also a lack of transparency in the verification and reporting process. These challenges are not unique to Singapore. They are universal. But we have an opportunity to be a first mover solution provider. And technology can potentially be our game changer in addressing some of these data challenges. To acquire relevant energy consumption data, we can look at solutions like APIs that connect directly to existing systems or IoT devices and sensors to measure directly at source carbon emissions, or satellite imagery to track the progress of reforestation and other carbon sequestration projects, and to maintain provenance and traceability in the data collected and mitigate the risk of greenwashing, we could look to distributed ledger technology. There are also emerging technology solutions to automatically generate customized and comprehensive environmental impact reports for clients. Many such experiments and prototyping are already underway in Singapore. 
Singapore cannot afford to lag behind international efforts towards a global sustainability reporting standard. The G7 countries have expressed support to move towards mandatory climate-related financial disclosures. The G7 has also agreed on the need for a baseline global reporting standard for sustainability, which jurisdictions can implement. Efforts by international standard setters towards a baseline global sustainability reporting standard have gained significant momentum and support. MAS is playing an active role in these international efforts. The key question is whether our companies can step up to the emerging sustainability reporting standards. MAS and SGX will set out roadmaps for mandatory climate-related financial disclosures by financial institutions and listed entities, respectively. The roadmap will take a phased approach. A more ambitious timeline could be considered for listed entities that are larger or more exposed to climate risk. Larger financial institutions can similarly be prioritised. Details will be worked out in consultation with the industry in the coming months, but the key point is there is not much time to lose. As I mentioned in my last lecture, carbon pricing is gaining momentum globally. This price can be set either by governments through carbon taxes or market forces through cap-and-trade systems where market participants can trade their emissions allowances. A meaningful price for carbon is the cornerstone for a successful transition to a green economy. Without getting the price of carbon right, most sustainability efforts will not make economic sense and thereby not gain traction. The right price of carbon is the social cost it imposes on the environment. As mentioned in my last lecture, estimates of what that price should be in 2030 vary considerably. But the lower end of the estimates at 75 US dollars per tonne of carbon dioxide equivalent is above the carbon taxes of most countries. And according to the World Bank, these prices need to be much higher. Among jurisdictions that have introduced a carbon price, Singapore is an outlier at $3.75 US dollars. Carbon taxes in Singapore will have to move to a steeper trajectory to help us meet our climate commitments. The original intention was to gradually raise the carbon tax from 2023 onwards to 10 to $15, about 7 to 11 US dollars per tonne of CO2 equivalent by 2030. The government is now reviewing both the post-2023 trajectory and the level of the carbon tax to ensure that they provide sufficient impetus for emissions reduction and restructuring towards a greener economy. Early forward guidance of the future trajectory in carbon taxes will give businesses time to start restructuring towards less carbon intensity and avoid sharper and more painful adjustments later on. Higher carbon taxes will of course impose a short-term drag on the economy. But I think fears of a loss of competitiveness are sometimes overstated. Empirical work on the European experience over the period 2005 to 2020 
finds no robust evidence of carbon taxes reducing employment or GDP growth. Sweden's experience is illustrative, that it is possible to reduce emissions while maintaining economic growth. The Swedish carbon tax is today by far the highest in the world, at 110 euros or 123 US dollars per tonne of CO2 emitted. During the period between 1990 and 2017, Sweden's GDP increased by 78%, while great domestic greenhouse gas emissions declined sharply. And in 2019, Sweden ranked eighth on the Global World Competitiveness Index. Of course, Sweden also had real alternatives to fossil fuels, such as nuclear and hydroelectric power. Singapore does not have these options, so the trade-off will be sharper for us. But we don't need to go anywhere near a carbon tax of 100 US dollars. The important point that these country experiences are conveying is that Singapore can afford significantly higher carbon taxes than currently envisaged and still remain competitive as an economy. Singapore's approach of starting with a low carbon tax makes sense, but only if it increases steadily over time. Economic research has found that carbon pricing that starts at a lower rate and gradually rises until it reaches the intended target is more efficient than a carbon price that remains constant over time. Giving the economy time to adjust to rising carbon prices imposes lower discretionary costs. Once again, Sweden offers a good example. The carbon tax was introduced in 1991 at 23 euros per tonne and gradually increased over the years to the current 110 euros. Carbon taxes should be designed equitably. Otherwise, its effects can hit lower income households hardest. In some way, a carbon tax is like the GST. The fact that the GST is regressive does not necessarily make it a bad tax. Singapore has found a novel way of giving GST offsets to lower income households to mitigate the impact of the GST on them. Similarly, part of the proceeds of carbon taxes could be distributed to lower income households through carbon dividends. This retains the desired allocative effects of higher carbon taxes while dampening its distributional consequences. Carbon taxes will have to be complemented by more stringent environmental regulation. Otherwise, the carbon tax will be untenably high, bearing the full burden of effecting the transition towards lower carbon intensity. Stricter environmental regulation will deter environmentally harmful behavior in the first place so that the carbon tax does not need to do the heavy lifting. Ultimately, to enable the four strategies I've outlined to become an innovative economy, we need a strong Singapore core, working alongside the best of global talents. This means going the extra mile to build a strong Singaporean core to anchor and grow new businesses. It also means remaining open to expertise and skills from abroad that we are in short supply of. It is gratifying to see more young Singaporeans turning to entrepreneurship. They are working in tech startups and acquiring skills in innovation and lessons in failure that no MNC, bank or government agency 
can provide. It is heartwarming to see local born and bred startups succeed venturing into the region, becoming unicorns, and raising capital in international capital markets. If I have any regrets about my own career, it is that I did not spend a couple of years in a startup. By any objective standard, few governments in the world focus as much energy and effort in developing the human capital of their citizens. Singapore has an astonishing array of heavily subsidized training schemes, professional conversion programs, job attachments, specialist scholarships, leadership development programs, overseas postings, internships, traineeships. And a growing number of firms are tapping on these schemes. Singapore also has a fairly open regime in admitting foreigners on employment passes. Being a magnet for talent from around the world has considerably enhanced Singapore's attractiveness as a place to locate high-value-added activities. This has in turn generated good jobs for Singaporeans. In this lecture, when I refer to foreigners, I mean those on employment passes, not those on work permits. Now, this two-pronged talent strategy of growing a strong Singaporean core and attracting talents from abroad to complement our workforce is, however, coming under strain. Among some segments of the local population, there is growing unhappiness over job competition from foreigners. According to polls by MCI, a majority of Singaporeans agree that Singapore needs foreigners in our workforce and that they make important contributions to Singapore. But paradoxically, many also feel that foreigners are a threat to their job security. Perhaps what these Singaporeans are saying is, foreigners in our workforce are good for the country as a whole, but I'm concerned about losing my job to a foreigner. This is a perfectly natural and understandable feeling. And job anxiety is also accentuated by the perceived lack of fairness in the hiring and promotion process, with some Singaporeans feeling that many foreign employers hire or promote foreigners on the basis of nationality rather than merit. Now, at the same time, segments of the expatriate community here been feeling increasingly unwelcome. The delay in allowing employment pass holders and their dependents to return to Singapore during the two phases of heightened alert when our infection numbers were high has caused some understandable distress, especially for families that were separated. Some have been stranded overseas for more than a year. Measures such as freezing the issuance of employment passes for breaches of the Fair Consideration Framework and cancelling the work passes of foreigners who breach safe management measures have had a chilling effect on several multinationals and expatriates. The growing online hostility towards foreigners has also not helped matters. We need to resolve this effective divide. To be fair, it is nowhere near as bad as in many other countries. We have through years of hard work, built up a strong base of multiculturalism, tolerance, and acceptance. The vast majority of locals and expatriates live and work together in Singapore in harmony. But Singapore cannot afford to be seen either as lacking an opportunity for our own citizens or unwelcoming of foreigners. 
In today's lecture, I will touch on why this is important for our economy. And in my last lecture, I will speak about why this is important for us as a people. As I mentioned in my first lecture, there is growing interest by global MNCs and financial institutions to invest or expand in Singapore. Our skillful handling of the COVID-19 pandemic, sound approach to policy making, and progressive stance towards innovation and technology, coupled with heightened uncertainty over global economic conditions, has prompted several international firms to consider rebalancing their regional and global footprint towards Singapore. EDB is attracting strong investment commitments to set up cutting-edge manufacturing facilities in Singapore. These include building electric vehicles, producing vaccines, and fabricating advanced semiconductor chips. Expertise in automotive engineering, vaccine development, and high-end chip design is not widely available here. And so these firms need to be able to bring in experts to complement the Singapore workforce to enable the ramp-up of production. There is strong interest among MNCs and global financial institutions to expand their regional headquarter activities here. Now, this will involve the relocation of key decision makers and core teams to Singapore. There are even some companies looking to re-domicile and relocate their HQ to Singapore. The agglomeration of HQ functions will help to create many local jobs, but these companies will need to bring their senior management teams here to set up and kickstart their operations in Singapore. There is increased interest from international firms to shift their technology and innovation functions to Singapore. These plans include building up research and engineering teams with manufacturing and product development capabilities. At EDB's urging, many of these manufacturing firms are recruiting fresh graduates from our universities, polytechnics, and ITEs. But they will still need to relocate senior engineers from abroad to support the ramp-up of the new teams and development of local capabilities. Likewise, various financial institutions have designated Singapore as their global IT hub or Asia Technology Centre. Many of the apex jobs in these centers require deep domain knowledge in areas such as blockchains, cybersecurity, machine learning, and cloud computing, where there are not enough Singaporeans. But these apex jobs create many other jobs that provide opportunities for the Singaporean workforce to gain experience and skills in these areas. Likewise, the four digital banks that MAS has granted license to are expected to hire around 1,000 employees over the next three years. But they will need to bring in expertise from abroad in areas of shortage here, such as software development, data analytics, and artificial intelligence. But MAS will require the digital banks to undertake to transfer knowledge and skill sets to locals over the initial startup period so that the teams will be mostly made up of Singaporeans eventually. Opportunities like these do not come often, but a key question that many of these foreign firms ask is whether Singapore will remain open to foreign talents. Singapore's value proposition as an innovative business hub will be at serious risk if we restrict the flow of talent and expertise. A weakening of Singapore's hub status 
will have adverse medium to long-term implications, not only for local jobs and wages, but also Singapore's standing in the world. But the anxieties that some Singaporeans feel about the influx of foreigners are real and need to be addressed. First, the minimum qualifying salary for special pass holders and employment pass holders should continue to be raised over time. The government has progressively raised these qualifying salary thresholds. And as Singaporeans continue to attain higher levels of education and acquire deeper specialist skills, they should be able to take on these jobs, provided the wages are higher. So raising wages in the middle of the income distribution is a theme I will come back to in my next lecture. In fact, the question is, should we consider raising and pegging the minimum qualifying salary for special pass holders at somewhere closer to the median monthly income, currently around $4,500. Now, we should be cautious, though, about tightening employment passes at the higher end, as that could well lead to loss of adjacent local jobs. An MAS study shows that there is generally a high degree of complementarity between high-skilled employment pass holders and local professionals in the financial services sector. Now, there is some corroborative evidence from other sectors too that by facilitating business expansion into new areas, high-skilled employment pass holders tend to create employment for locals rather than substitute for them. Second, we should more directly target the issues relating to discriminatory hiring in favour of foreigners that you see in some firms. The Fair Consideration Framework seeks to ensure that Singaporeans have equal opportunity to fill vacant positions. Today, firms which breach the frame framework face the prospect of a freeze on their employment pass privileges. But rather than curtail the inflow of foreign workers and thereby restrain business growth and job opportunities for locals, we might want to consider directly publish punishing the individuals in the firm found to have engaged in discriminatory hiring. Measures could potentially include imposing financial penalties, reducing bonuses, freezing promotions, and maybe even terminating employment. This will have a strong deterrent effect. Discrimination of any form should have no place in Singapore. Being an international hub is the only way a small country like Singapore can aspire to first world standards of living. Singapore attained its current level of prosperity by being an international centre, tapping international talents and serving an international market. But this also means that we must accept a higher foreign presence in Singapore than is the case in other countries. We can accept this as long as the foreigners who come here are of high quality, help to expand economic activity and thereby help to create job opportunities for Singaporeans, and Singaporeans are always treated fairly. If we can make this compact work, with all the opportunities coming our way, Singapore has a bright future as an innovative, digital and green economy at the heart of a dynamic Southeast Asia, creating good jobs and meaningful careers for us all. Innovation will be the key to our future prosperity but it must also be an inclusive prosperity. I look forward to sharing with you in my next lecture how we can promote a more inclusive society. Thank you.
Thank you, Mr. Menon. May I now invite Mr. Chen Kai Fong, Managing Director of the Singapore Economic Development Board, to start the Q&A session. Hi. Uh, so that was four lectures rolled into one, and I think each of the topics that you touched on uh, could easily be uh, taken out and you, know, you could develop, yes. develop a full <laughs> treatise. So thank you for that. Uh, I wanted to connect this actually to your first lecture and your Q&A. And one sentence that you said in the Q&A near the end struck me, right? You said democracy, on, Aristotle said, democracy survives on the basis of support from the middle. And in that sense, that's the underlying theme running throughout because uh, what we're trying to do is to sort of insulate and make Singapore thrive as the four horsemen sort of march across Singapore. And, and one of the key opportunities is to transform ourselves as an innovative economy. So I thought uh, to, to augment or to complement what you've done just now, to sort of shift our perspectives to just three groups of uh, people mm. that uh, would need to thrive in this new economy and they would need to transform themselves to be innovative. Uh, so maybe let me start with the first group of people, uh, which are, I would say, uh, the broad middle. So these are people in the middle, mid-40s, uh, probably to the late 50s. And they are in the midst of transition. Uh, they are, in a sense, under pressure from the economic changes. So what would you say to these people, uh, especially when you, know, you sketched out all the drivers of innovation and you, know, you tend to associate innovation with you know, people who are moving in the fast lane, the young and global elite out there in the tech firms. But uh, the mid-40s and 50s are facing a lot of pressure. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, they may not have the necessary skills, they would need to change jobs. So how would we help them to thrive in this innovative economy. Yeah. I'm glad, Kai, if you touched on the, uh, um, you focused on the middle, because I think that's where uh, we, we, we should put our, to our minds to, and to make sure that wages and living standards in the broad middle continue to rise. Mm -hmm. And to do that, it means productivity growth. Now, the, I focused on innovation rather than technology, although the two tend to get conflated. Um, technology is all the blockchain stuff, mm -hmm. artificial intelligence. There's only going to be about 5 to 10% of the population who's going to get into that. Right? Yep. Most of us, uh, cognitively, we, we can't handle it and you know, calls for very higher order skills. But I think the innovation we want to see that is pervasive across the economy and the workforce, especially across the middle, is to use those technologies to change work process, how they serve their customer better, yep. uh, how they reach out to new markets. That's mm -hmm. the innovation. And uh, you see it, say, uh, if you take financial services. Now, the people who write the apps, the people who develop the programs, they are you know, a, a small group of very talented engineers. Yep. But you need to be able to use this to service your client better. Mm -hmm. That means a certain comfort with technology, a certain level of understanding of how to use and get the extract the benefits of that to serve your customer. Yep. Find new ways of serving a customer, which the machine itself can't do. Yep. That is the kind of innovation we need in the middle. And we are making efforts in that direction. 
And I would say it's still, early, to be very honest, yeah. quite early days to see how far it's successful. There are some promising examples, and you know, we often show them you know, how people have trans... Bank tellers have become yeah. you know, ad, uh, advisors and digital ambassadors. Um, have, has it been pervasive? I would mm -hmm. say not yet. Uh, We've got to keep working at this. And I think uh, this is a problem that almost all the major advanced economies face. Yep. In, in their case, it's even worse because many of their workers in the middle are in manufacturing sectors which have just hollowed out. Mm -hmm. And that's much more difficult to make the transition. Um, here, I think, we can have a better stab at it because we're a smaller country. And I take some consolation that our workers have been able to reinvent themselves uh, with the dramatic changes in the structure of the economy. This is not the first time this is happening, right? Yep. Um, I remember when I first started work and I was an economist, um, Singapore's biggest export was disk drives, yes. Winchester disk drives. We were the world's largest producer of disk drives. Mm -hmm. Seagate and a whole range of other companies were producing it. Large numbers of Singaporeans employed. Today, I don't think we produce any of it. It's gone out, right? Yeah. An entire industry, we were the largest producer, has just completely offshored. How do we manage? Our manufacturing workforce still managed. They moved on to new activities. So the, that we need to continually, by innovation in the middle, it is about the ability to move to adjacent areas. Having the enterprising spirit to try something that's adjacent, not too far out, <clears throat> but not entirely your comfort zone. If we can do that, I think we'll be in a good place. And I think that's where most of our efforts are focused on. But I'll readily admit, it's not easy, uh, and it doesn't work for everyone, because we're all differently equipped. Mm -hmm. And so we need to find different ways of doing this. So what are the challenges that uh, you see today for this particular group of people in trying to move to adjacent areas? I think uh, I'll touch on some of this in my next lecture, where we need a more nimble and flexible labor force that's much more mobile. Yeah. We are not very mobile. We are not mobile in many ways. We're not mobile with respect to changing jobs. We're not mobile with respect to going for overseas postings. We seem to have a lot of encumbrances. Mm -hmm. Housing mortgage, children's education, we have borrowed to the hilt. Um, so making these switches becomes more difficult. And if you look at successful small European countries like Denmark, they don't have that much baggage. They can uproot, go for training for six months, no, no pay or small stipend, and then move to another yep. job. I think that's a problem. We can't afford to make those transitions. And so we need to change that. And I do think there is a role for government to ease this transition. I'm not advocating full unemployment benefits. Mm -hmm. But I think while a person is training and moving to a new line of work, there ought to be support. And he's used to a certain lifestyle. He's feeding, he's got a family to feed. And that cannot be compromised. So if we can circle that problem, I think it will make it easier for people to take the leap to, to, to do something new. People need to be able to move across jobs and seize new opportunities, learn new things. And we need to remove the impediments that somehow seems to have gotten entrenched in Singapore. Yeah, and just to round that out, right, just to flip on the other side, why should people in this age group at least have some optimism that this is indeed possible? Because 
because of all the opportunities coming our way mm-hmm. that, you know, compared to so many of the advanced industrial economies, America, Europe, and so on, where growth rates have slowed considerably, where median wages have stagnated for 20, 30 years, uh, where the nature of growth is so skewed towards the upper end. We are in a much better position, and one of the things I've been trying to get across in the lecture, notwithstanding the challenges posed by the four horsemen, which are huge, is the opportunities coming our way, the interest that is coming into Singapore. People want to come here. People want to do business with us. People want to connect with us. Our trust premium has grown. Mm-hmm. Our value proposition has grown. So I don't think there'll be a shortage of activities. The big question is, yep. can we transition ourselves to seize those jobs for ourselves? Yeah. Or whether we have to continue to depend on foreigners to take those jobs. I think that is, that's the reason why you need to be, that's a basis for optimism. But the optimism is based on also a, a resolve that I will step forward to seize those opportunities. Great. And now I want to move on to the second category of people, which is really our young. And in particular, not just the graduates from our universities, but also our polytechnic graduates and IT graduates. Where are, what are some of the challenges you see for this group uh, in participating in an innovative economy? Again, um, let me start with the polytechnics. I think our polytechnics are quite world-class. There are there is very few countries out there that have the equivalent of our polytechnics. Mm-hmm. The, the quality of education they receive, which is just short of an academic uh, degree kind of program, but actually imbibes good, strong skills. I think the pity is that many of them are not being deployed and their skills not being utilized well in the economy. There is some problem that we need, this is a problem we need to resolve. Mm -hmm. The wage gap, the starting salary gap between a diploma holder and a university graduate is just too big, not justified by the difference in skills level. And yet there's something in our labor market that creates this wedge. Mm Many of our polytechnic students pick up very good skills which they find they can't get a good market wage for and then they opt to go for softer skills degree programs. Which is also very sad because if they honed these, especially these IT and digital skills, uh, they could be hugely valuable uh, and impactful in the digital economy that's growing. Mm -hmm. So we really need to crack this one. the bulk of our workforce is in poly- polytechnic education. That's the best post-secondary education we have. And if we can harness that, that uh, energy and that skills level, I think we're in a better place. But I, I'm also quite bewildered by the yeah. nature of our job market that doesn't give them sufficient uh, recognition, which is why I think continued emphasis on skills rather than Mm -hmm. education qualifications is important. It's not a cliche, it's not a slogan, it is real. And basically, employers and uh, businesses need to become more enlightened about assessing the skills level of a person rather than take the easy way out of looking at qualifications. I think if we can do that, we can compress some of the wage premiums and make for a more equitable distribution of incomes in the middle. Yes, and I young. think 
what we have been trying to do is also to integrate some of that education into the workforce. Into the, yeah. yeah like, yeah. Sing, like SIT, even the police are now doing a lot more internships and work yes. uh, bringing work experience in. Yes, that I think is a wonderful thing. In fact, the uh, polytechnics are much more open to collaborating with industry. They, want the, they are asking, show me your job description. What are the skill sets you're looking out for? I will align my program and my curriculum to meet that. The more we do that, the link between education and skills training at the job become blurred and continuous, and uh, we can have more of our polytechnic graduates secure jobs. In fact, I think this is something that all the economic agencies should focus on, to secure as many jobs mm -hmm. for our polytechnic graduate uh, students while they are still studying. So if I was a young person and you were to give me advice, Right, based on the landscape and of opportunities you've sketched out, what would you advise me to do to, to thrive in this innovative economy? Join a startup. Join a startup, not for life, not all of us are cut out to be entrepreneurs, but join a startup because you will then learn firsthand what it takes to build a business, an enterprise from scratch. Mm -hmm. You have the exhilaration of creating something new. There is no structure, there is no bureaucracy. Um, you're going to have your bureaucracy for the rest of your life anyway. Most of us will go into settled jobs. But I think this is wonderful training. In fact, I hope you know, if there is some way in which we can make as many young Singaporeans, before they start formal work in EDB or MAS or, or the banks yep. or, or MNCs, spend two or three years in a startup, build character, learn what failure looks like, learn what doors slammed in your face look like, mm -hmm. tinker with technology, mm -hmm. uh, learn from other like-minded people, mm -hmm. get inspired, and then you go on to life. And I think it makes, it, it gives you wonderful training. Uh, I've not done it myself, but seeing others who have done it, I yeah. sometimes feel envious. Yeah, it gives you perspective for sure. Indeed. I mean, just having interacted with people who have been part of, let's say, the university overseas college programs, uh, our polytechnics who send their students to ASEAN startups, I think you can mm -hmm. tell that the whole experience changes them. Yeah, yeah. Great. And then the final group of uh, people that I thought uh, to have you comment on will be our Singapore Enterprises. Uh, not just SMEs, but also the larger firms. And what role do they, what can they do to thrive in an innovative economy? I think we've done a pretty good job over the last 50-odd years. Uh, but there are some signs that some of our firms are laggards or have uh, not quite kept pace with the rest of uh, the global economy. And it doesn't help that uh, you spoke about how the bigger tech firms are now exercising monopolistic powers. So how can we have, you know, the next bound of, the next generation of unicorns and startups, as you say? What do we have to do differently? Yeah, so there are several different categories here. I think um, if you look at the small and medium enterprise sector, that's about 180,000 or close to 200,000 mm -hmm. of them. My view is that we need to see more consolidation. Given the sheer small size of our domestic economy, 
it's very hard to have so many small and medium enterprises. Mm -hmm. They just can't achieve the scale that's required to digitalize, to upgrade, invest in new technology and new capabilities, and to find good people. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, there is a shortage of good managerial capabilities in many of our small and medium enterprises because that's a scarce commodity in any economy. Yep. Uh, but because we're small, it's more acute. So I do think more of our small and medium enterprises need to consolidate. Now, the, there have been all kinds of incentives provided, I think, yep. uh, to make it easy to have mergers. But I think people value their independence, um, and, uh, but still run small businesses um, in a rather unproductive way, and they're not able to give good wages to their workers. Mm -hmm. So I think that's one thing we, it's a problem we haven't solved, and I think it's something we need to keep working at. Uh, we need to consolidate. Um, second, I think some of what I described, I was very excited, I'm very excited by the digital connectivity possibilities. Yep. Because that surmounts a big problem that our smaller enterprises face. Mm -hmm. Very few of them in the old days will be able to you know, go out, make a trip to Indonesia, go and meet clients, set up a business, you know, rent a place, you know, yep. and, and do all the log logistics necessary to set up business. And trying to serve them out of here, you've got a lot of things going wrong. Uh, digital platforms, something I'm really excited about, because suddenly you realize that it, op it, it really democratizes. It opens up everything. Yeah. And if you're able to get onto these platforms, and you've got to keep these platforms open architecture, um, and find suppliers, find buyers, find mm -hmm. financiers, partners, logistic service providers, and so on. And as these platforms get better and better, uh, using artificial intelligence and using data analytics, I think the information flow will become richer yep. and uh, become a lot easier for our SMEs to, the world becomes your oyster yeah. for them to reach out. So okay. we really hope that we can get more of them onto things like the national, the NTP, yep. BSB, all these other acronyms that I mentioned. I hope they become second nature. SMEs get onto them, and even our middle mid enterprises get yeah. onto them, and reach out. Hopefully, that gives a boost. But you know, I want to compare ourselves with, let's say, the Swiss economy. And you know, you see many Swiss, you know, in EDB, we see many multinationals. And you know, we always hold ourselves the benchmark of the Swiss, right? ABB, mm. Roche. Novartis, mm. Mm. Nestle, huge players that have gone out, became global names. How is it that our economy has not quite been able to, to you know, we are almost similar in size, in, in terms of population size. Uh, our education is not too bad either. We are also digitally connected. How is it that we are not able to match up to what the Swiss have achieved? Okay, that's... Uh... <laughs> As much a sociological, economic, uh, many dimensions come in. Um, I too have often admired the Swiss society, having lived there for a year. Um, there is, and I'm not going to be able to say anything deeply insightful. Yeah. Uh, it's mostly impressionistic. Um, they place a great deal of value on learning and on inventiveness and uh, 
and excellence. Um, you know, pharmaceuticals is something you 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 it's don't play play. Yeah. And the amazing thing is, they also make the best chocolates. Yeah. They make food products. They make watch wonderful watches. There is a great pride in work. I, I, I can't point to any economic factor. I think culturally there is great pride in craftsmanship. It's generations mm -hmm. of taking pride in what you produce, making it the best in class for your customer. Yeah. And so whether it's making uh, a, a drug or a watch or a, a, a fine chocolate, you, you see that, uh, that uh, excellence yeah. going in. The other thing is, Swiss society is also a lot more egalitarian. Yes. Um, they don't have such large differences because everyone, the dignity of work is strong. Everyone has a commitment to excellence and income distribution is not so wide. And so, you know, somebody is quite happy to be making chocolates because I, I'm making one of the best chocolates in the world, mm -hmm. right? My status is, yeah, I'm a chocolate, I'm running a confectionery. Uh, there is no mad rush for everyone to get into yep. big banks and so on. Of course, there are the Swiss banks are also world class, mm -hmm. uh, but they're not world class in the J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs kind of. They are small boutique banks mm -hmm. providing highly specialized services. So if you even if you look at private banking, you set aside UBS and Credit Suisse. The Swiss private banking industry is mostly small boutique banks providing very customized, highly specialized services, yeah. customer-oriented. So there's something about their culture that is customer-focused, excellence-focused, wanting to learn continuously uh, and, and being flexible. These are not alien to us. We have some of those in our DNA. Uh, but there are other forces at work here that kind of constrain us. And if we can free ourselves of those, why not? We too can become like that. Yeah, I think we, we certainly can if we have the will to do that. So I'm going to take some audience questions right now. And maybe mm -hmm. let's start with uh, distortions, a question on distortions in the labour market uh, by uh, Su Liente. So she asks, what are the distortions in our labour market and how can we fix them? I think you touched a little bit about it just now, especially in the non-tradable segments. Uh, do we have wage repression in favour of returns to real estate owners? The whole idea about uh, maybe we've become a rentier society. Are workers in the wrong profession? Uh, she talks about how we have so many grab delivery driver, uh, drivers and riders, insurance, real estate salespeople, but a shortage of nurses, construction workers. And what should we be doing differently? Yep. It's a very good question. It's a very troubling question. Um, I too have often wondered about uh, the wage differentials across different occupations. I'm going to touch on this in my third lecture. I did speak about this a few years ago. Why are plumbers paid so much less in Singapore? Why are electricians paid so mm -hmm. much less? Uh, somebody who repairs your car. Um, a whole lot of skilled professions. I know next to nothing about plumbing. If I have a leak, I need the plumber. Right? But why is this pay so much lower? If you compare it to other countries, and we, we did, I did this a few years ago, and I want to update it for the next lecture. Across quite a number of mm -hmm. these kinds of jobs, the pay is low. Um, nurses, uh, 
teachers of special needs children, yep. uh, childcare specialists. A lot of these jobs require a high degree of, I'm not saying uh, academic brilliance, high but touch, high, high, high touch, yes. yes. A lot of EQ, a lot of acumen, a whole lot of skill sets. These are skilled jobs, um, but we don't seem to be able to, they don't seem to be able to get good wages. So we need to, th so when we talk about income inequality, actually it's much more important to look at occupational wage inequality and see why are occupations paid so differently? What is it in our market that brings this about? I think if we can solve that, the, the much of the angst we have about income inequality according to Gini coefficient, Gini ratios, will go away because that's barking up the wrong tree. Mm -hmm. So I, I fully agree with the question that there seems to be uh, 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 some problem in our labour market in the way we reward structures are done. Um, will this change over time? I don't know. Now, one of the reasons why I think this is the case is because we have a large foreign workforce in some of these occupations. Mm -hmm. And because they come cheap and uh, it keeps the cost of many of these services low, uh, we have accepted the lower wages in these jobs. And I think that's, a, that's the dual economy trap that we need to escape from, which is why I was making the case that we should gradually reduce our re dependence on foreign labour for many of these uh, skilled jobs in the middle. I'm not talking about the top end. Mm -hmm. Many of these skilled jobs, nurses and so on, over time, you must allow the wages to rise to a point where it's attractive for Singaporeans to come in. And that, I think, will raise the status of these jobs um, and make the middle much stronger. The catch is that the cost will go up. Uh, from hawker centre food to healthcare costs to, you know, Domestic to repairing your, plumber, yeah, your plumbing yeah. service, everything will go yeah. up, right? Uh, your house repairs, renovation, everything will go up because you're getting skilled Singaporeans to do it. So we have to deal with that, which is why I think our big challenge is to escape this uh, low-cost, low-wage, vicious cycle and get into a high-cost, high-wage. But the high-cost is affordable for most people because most people have high-wage. Again, think yeah. Switzerland. But the question is how to get there. What's the, what's the journey to get there? And what are the transition costs? The transition costs will not be small. Uh, we would have to, I think, uh, gradually reduce the dependence on foreign labour, costs will rise, some of these firms will have to consolidate, and then there may have to be some kind of fiscal support for the workers who are stranded, and then manage this experience. I mentioned the example in the Ruhr Valley of coal miners. 480,000 coal miners lost their jobs. How did they do that? Well, it's over time, it's careful planning. It's the kind of stuff Singapore is good at. If the Germans can do it, we can do yeah, it. Yeah, for sure. But we need the will to do it and uh, the ability to bear some of the adjustment cost and pain. It is because we've not done that and taken, in my view, the easy way out uh, in a desire to always keep costs low, which is another point I'm making. Mm -hmm. I think we are overly obsessed with cost competitiveness not realising that keeping costs low 
is actually keeping wages down. We've got a related question, but this time more at the higher end, on Sika and immigration from a Doitu. And uh, so the question is this. As much as it's true that Singapore is in an excellent position to leverage our cosmopolitan society with an international outlook, we cannot ignore the fact that many Singaporeans feel threatened with the inflow of talent from a particular nationality. Irrespective of whether it's real or perceived, it needs to be addressed. So her, the question is, how do you think we continue to seek growth without the risk of fracturing our already fragile social fabric? I yeah. imagine you'll be touching some of that in the third lecture, but perhaps you could focus more on the seeking growth part without causing more fractures. Yeah, so I think uh, one of the One of the key questions that we should focus the national discourse on this subject on is the complementarity between local and foreign workers. Right? So I mentioned a very mm -hmm. limited MAS study on financial services. We found that at the higher end is complementary. So yep. we're quite confident that's, and we can see anecdotally, mm -hmm. at the higher end, they're not losing jobs to foreigners. There'll always be exceptions. You can't have a complete 100% complementary outcome. There will be some substitution, but by and large, it's been complementary. But we need to actually examine this much more closely across the economy um, and to see and satisfy ourselves, indeed, if the complementary relationship holds between locals and foreigns in all sectors and industries. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure of that entirely because we've not, I don't think we've studied that data very carefully. Uh, but this is something we need to do. And if we do find that there are some areas where actually the substitution effects are stronger, where foreigners are actually taking the jobs that Singaporeans could have done, mm -hmm. um, then we've got to rethink our policies in those areas. So I think this hinges a lot on demonstrating complementarity. My own view is that by and large, it is complementary. Um, but that still doesn't satisfy everyone because, as I said, you know, most Singaporeans, according to the polls, agree that the foreigners create opportunity here and in the process create jobs for Singaporeans. Yep. But if you are that unlucky person who lost your job, it's still painful. So the lived reality mm -hmm. is different from the statistical fact. Yeah. And we got to address that lived reality as well. So that's why I think... Uh, we need to take this at two points. One is to demonstrate the complementarity so that at least, at least intellectually people understand this is good for us. Then there is the emotional part where I have been affected or my friends have been affected and we need to help them. We need to get them transitioned mm -hmm. into new jobs. And that's something we discussed earlier on. Not easy, but there is a variety of programs, conversion programs and so on, and give them a leg up and we may need to change some of our active labor market policies mm -hmm. to make it more easy and mobile for them to move. So I think if we can do those, then I think we can maintain a rough social compact. It's never going to be perfect, mm -hmm. but I think we can do better than what I think we are slipping into right now. Great. Also, I have another question uh, on the aging population and on women uh, from uh, Kawan Jitsoink. The question is, with an aging population, Labor force declines because we are not being innovative enough with how we maximize the capabilities of two groups of people. One, older people, 
and two women with care responsibilities. So furthermore, these two groups of people create opportunities for the creation of new jobs and services so that they are not a drag on the economy. Uh, what do you think are the opportunities for these two groups of people? Yeah, I think um, we've been making efforts to keep uh, older workers longer in the workforce. Uh, to some extent, I think it has worked because our aged, uh, our uh, participation mm -hmm. rate in that range has improved. Uh, it's not bad by international comparison, so it's not we're not doing too badly. Uh, but to be realistic. I, I think further increases are going to be difficult. Yep. You've got to understand the, the, the economics facing many firms, especially with all these changes going on. Uh, they do need fresh young talents who can master these technologies and these new ways of working. So I think uh, it's going to be, we can make a bit more progress, but it's going to be limited. One thing that uh, it's just an idea that I've been toying around with, is actually it may well be that the gig economy shifts from the younger group to the older group. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think it is a pity that too many young people are in the gig economy uh, because these are years when they should be having solid jobs, whether it's a startup yeah. or a multinational or a local enterprise. Building skills. Building skills, yeah. building, skills building capabilities, and coming up and not take the easy way of quick bucks that you can get in a gig economy. But for the older workers, this is a possibility. And for women who, who uh, have child-rearing responsibilities and find it difficult to hold down a full-time job, mm -hmm. uh, gig economy type services that you can provide through the home, through a computer, through a digital platform um, are possibilities that both the older population as well as the uh, women who are not able to uh, join the formal workforce could explore. So I think we need to see a, a flip, flipping of the gig economy yeah. to an older cohort because that's one way in which they can, because retirement adequacy is an issue. Mm -hmm. They're living longer. And even at a stretch, they work till 65, 67. They still have many good, many years. And they may have to look at something like this. And this is something we may want to think hard about. Uh, and be, it'll be very interesting if you can have entrepreneurs and social enterprises come up with ideas on how to tap on these, yep. these uh, talents. And in fact, right? we tend to associate startups with 20-something, you 30-something. Know, yes. <laughs> but actually, we could flip it around. We can flip it around, yeah. yeah. Well, one last question, and the obligatory question on education, which always pops up in every one of these <laughs> lectures. Uh, so what are some, by, by Madiha, in striving towards a frontier economy that prizes innovation, is the existing school curricula sufficient? Should there be more emphasis on personal development and creativity? But let me extend that. What's, what do we need to do to improve uh, our education system, not just for pre-employment, but also throughout life. What are some of the necessary capabilities or skills that we need to equip our people with? Um, well, I just said we have a very good education system, and I mean it. Yeah. We, we do. Uh, we produce very good, high-quality workers. And, and you mentioned and digital skills yes, and experience. the whole and range of skills and, and the right aptitudes 
and uh, mm -hmm. foreign multinationals always tell us. Um, but creativity and innovation, a little bit different. Mm -hmm. um, and, the, and the common perception, which I think has quite a bit of truth, is that that's not an area we're particularly strong at. I think um, we need to spend more time on questions rather than answers in our education system. Our education system is very focused on finding answers. Um, but creativity and innovation is always about asking the right questions. Um, and the what if kinds of questions, the, the inquiry yep. is something that uh, it's not often, not often uh, emphasized. There is uh, a lot of rush to cover a lot of content, which is necessary, but because we also need to then decide who goes where, we have tests, and because we have tests, we need to find the answers to those questions that yeah. come out in the test. So that's been the education experience we've all gone through. Um, but uh, So we assume there's a right answer. There, there is a right answer. And generations of Singaporeans have, have come up with that notion that there is a right answer. And when they go to work, uh, they're also looking for the right answer. But actually, they should be asking the right questions. And that's what opens up new avenues. Um, and you see this everywhere, whether it's a bank or even our government agencies. Yep. They're always trying to find the right answer for the paper, but never <laughs> trying to ask, what is the right question? What are we missing here? What is it we don't know? Um, this rush to find answers, uh, I think, stifles creativity. And um, we need to be able to handle uncertainty uh, and... Uh, be told that sometimes questions can have multiple answers. Um, sometimes, is it Fitzgerald Scott who said, uh, you know, the mark of intelligence is the ability to hold two contradictory ideas in your mind at the yep. same time. That's something we, we, we should take a bigger stab at uh, and uh, educate our people. Uh, it'll also make them less fixated on their own views and be more broad-minded, which is another ingredient for, for creativity and innovation. Thank you. And on that note, I thought that's a good way to end, given that your lecture has probably raised uh, many more questions mm. uh, than answers. And I think hopefully that will be the spirit that carries us uh, going forward. So thank you, Ravi. Thank you, Kai. Thank you very much. Back to you, Eunice. Thank you, Mr. Chung and Mr. Menon. We've come to the end of today's lecture. We would like to hear your feedback on the event. Please scan the QR code on the screen or click the link on the Facebook comment box to submit your feedback. Mr. Menon's third lecture, titled An Inclusive Society, will take place next Thursday, on the 22nd of July. Details will be available on our website and Facebook page. We hope to see you then. Thank you all for attending this afternoon's lecture. Have a great evening.